words to which I would like to draw our attention to this morning are in John 16. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel according to John chapter 16. I will begin reading in verse 12. John 16, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. To the one who has the sevenfold spirit, upon whom the spirit rests, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good on that claim. 
books might claim to give belief, Jesus' word does give belief. So John relays the signs of the Messiah. These specific signs, which contain ultimate, truthful, and life-changing, in fact, life-giving meaning. Truthfulness concerning who Jesus really is, what Jesus really taught, and what Jesus really did. Not so that we can just know more about Jesus, but so that we can know Jesus. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So that we would put our faith in Him, trusting it is Him and Him alone who can save us from our sins. And knowing that He does save those who come to Him by faith. Here there is life in his name, new life, to be lived for him because it is in him as the one who inaugurates the new creation, eternal life for everyone who believes in his name. And how did Jesus accomplish this salvation, the redemption of sinners? He saved sinners through the triumph and exaltation that comes through the cross. And how does John incredibly reveal this truth to us. So keep your finger in John chapter 16, and let's just take a little tour for a moment. Go back to John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Two chapters forward to John 8, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. A few more chapters forward to John 12, 32. 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What is John doing for us as he relays these truths of the Son of Man who will be the one who is lifted up? He will say, the triumph and the exaltation of Jesus Christ comes through the cross. That is where he is lifted up. Rather than doing the cross as that which inflicts only humiliation and shame, John tells us it is a place of glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice called out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Jesus completed as the obedient son his mission and gave his father glory by completing the work of redemption. Being lifted up on the cross is how Jesus would return ultimately to the Father and to heavenly glory. 
many have divided John into two major sections. The book of Signs, which covers chapters 1 through 12, and the book of Exaltation, which covers chapter 13 through to the end. At the beginning of what we might call the book of Exaltation, Jesus makes it very clear that he is about to leave, he is about to depart. So John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then a few verses later, 3 and 4. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. For Jesus' disciples and his followers, it, it meant that Jesus' time with them was limited. And John uses a large portion of the book of Exaltation to relay Jesus' farewell discourses to his disciples. These are, as it were, Jesus' final words of instruction, exhortation, encouragement, and hope for his disciples. We still think today it's important to heed someone's final words. We remember the last words, maybe, that someone has said before they pass away. They are indelibly seared into our minds and hearts. We cannot forget them, or perhaps sometimes shake them, especially with those we hold so dear. Jesus uses his farewell discourse to prepare the new messianic community for his absence. They were to be a new community and Jesus was preparing his disciples and his followers to be this new messianic community. A community that was founded upon this new covenant. New covenant sealed by the very blood that Jesus would shed on the cross. That would come through this confession that Jesus is Lord. It is he who unifies them. It's he who unites them. It's he in whom they find their life, their being, their everything. If there is to be a new messianic community, which we would call the church, what is the most important part of that community? Is it not the presence of the Messiah? We are those who long to see Jesus. We long to be with the glorified Lord in his presence in glory. But the underlying message of Jesus' farewell discourse is that it is better for him to go away. It's more advantageous to the disciples if he departs. And this is counterintuitive to how the disciples think. It's counterintuitive to how we think. Jesus had been with them. They had been in his presence for three and a half years. He is the one who has the words of eternal life. He is the one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is not to their advantage if he goes away. It would seem to be to their disadvantage. In fact, isn't this something that Martha says to Jesus 
when Jesus had waited to come after her brother had died, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If Jesus leaves, all hope is lost. But Jesus instructs them with these words, and let me paraphrase that line. It is better that I go away and that you know the absence of my physical presence because I will send someone else, the Holy Spirit, and his continual spiritual presence with you knows no limits of time or space. He is called by Jesus another helper. That's where we get this word paraclete from, a word which means to come alongside, to encourage, to exhort, sometimes translated as counselor, comforter, or advocate. But, however we might translate that word, it puts the disciples in a needy and humble position. You cannot find what you need in yourself. You cannot counsel yourself. You cannot comfort yourself. You cannot help yourself. You cannot be your own advocate. What you need is outside of you. It's external to you. It's not to be found in your own spirit as if there is any strength or power there. No, it is the spirit of God that you need. And he is called another helper. Meaning, he is not the only one. Jesus is a helper. Our helper as well. Here is the good news. You already have a helper in Jesus Christ, one who strengthens, encourages, exhorts, rebukes, one who is seated at the Father's right hand, ministering through his intercession for you to God the Father in his glorified humanity, the glorified Word made flesh. And he has sent another helper, one who strengthens, encourages, exhorts, rebukes, one who dwells within believers to aid them in their earthly walk. His farewell discourse, Jesus gives five paraclete passages. This is five times he brings up and instructs the disciples concerning the Holy Spirit. And with each passage, there are promises concerning the Spirit, who he is, what he does. And notice, let's make this very explicit this weekend. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not an it, a thing, or a force, not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person. The third person of the Trinity. And as Jesus relays these five passages to his disciples, the climax passage is reached here in John 16, verses 12-15. It is, as it were, the paramount, paraclete passage. It's of the utmost importance because in it, Jesus instructs on the purpose of the Spirit. A purpose that I fear has been confused or muddled or even lost among many in the church. 
and maybe even worse of all, abandoned. I don't know if you have ever had an experience where you were bludgeoned by someone. Not a bludgeoning of fists or blunt objects, but a bludgeoning of theological words. Specifically, theological words concerning the Holy Spirit of God. This person would talk of how the Spirit spoke to them, how the Spirit led them, how they felt a movement of the Spirit, or how it was as if the Spirit made them do something. The Spirit did this, and the Spirit did that. Sometimes attributing what he did to the most mundane of things, but sometimes attributing what he did to the most miraculous of things. With blow after blow, they bludgeoned with the Spirit, left bloody and bruised, we are left wondering to ourselves. Do I even know the Spirit? I do not know or experience the Spirit like this person does. What's wrong with me? Am I not spiritual enough? Am I so spiritually weak and dumb? Is my faith so small that I am not worthy to know the work of the Spirit like this person experiences the work of the Holy Spirit? Do I need to get in touch with the Spirit? Am I so insensitive that I don't know how he works? God has been feeling encouraged, lifted, and renewed by those conversations. We feel embarrassed, belittled, ashamed, disappointed, and perhaps slightly humiliated that we haven't experienced the spirit like this, let alone talk like this to other people. Do we need to be more spirit-centered? What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? And how does that purpose intersect with my life? Have we missed the purpose of the Holy Spirit? And if so, what does it look like to regain it? I think the purpose of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus relates it in these verses, is very simple. He relates the purpose of the Spirit in two parts. The problem is that taking either of these parts alone actually prevents us from knowing the purpose of the Spirit. The parts must go together in order to form the whole. The parts alone are not the whole. The parts left to themselves are not everything. But this idea is how we often take it. And when we do, we actually show we don't know the purpose of the Spirit. And then, dangerously, we attribute a purpose to the Spirit that was never his purpose in the first place. Then the Spirit is said to do things he would never do, or emphasize what he would never emphasize, or lead where he would never lead, or say what he would never say. And that happens, my dear brothers. The Holy Spirit is no longer at. So what are the parts? How do these parts fill out the whole? So that not only we not only do we know the purpose of the Spirit, but so also we can keep in step with the Spirit. I said these parts are fairly simple. I hope you're able to see them on the surface, surface of these verses. First, the Spirit guides. Second, the Spirit glorifies. First, Christ promises the Spirit will guide them into all the truth. We know various avenues in life for guidance. Students have guidance counselors. There are guide dogs for the blind. We receive guidance from Google Maps. 
Ask any Christian. Does the Holy Spirit guide you? I bet most, if not all, would resoundingly exclaim, yes. But what does Jesus mean when he says, he will guide you? It is necessary for us to ask, who is the you? Is this a promise for all Christians everywhere? Or is this a promise for the original disciples who were there with Jesus on that day as he delivered his farewell discourse? This is where sometimes we want to be quick to jump to application to ourselves. But if we are quick to insert ourselves in the text, we don't actually enhance the application of the text to our lives and make it meaningful. We actually short-circuit the text and complicate the application. Not bringing clarity to the way we live, but confusing how we ought to live. The you to whom Jesus refers, he will guide you into all the truth. The you to whom Jesus refers are the original disciples. So the promise is to them primarily and only secondarily through those original disciples is it a promise to us. Even the context makes this clear. Jesus still had many things to say to them. That is the original disciples. He recognizes, however, that they are unable to bear what he wanted to tell them. Jesus shows grace to these original disciples and not putting upon them what they are unable to bear at that time. Here is another evidence of the care and compassion of a loving Savior who knows the present state and situation of his disciples, and he lovingly tells them, not yet. You cannot bear the many things I have to say to you now. With the coming night, they would experience his trial, his crucifixion, his death, and then three, day, three days later, his resurrection. There was much that they needed to know about what was to happen. There were far-reaching implications that as of yet, they did not know and they did not understand. But Jesus provided a way to give them the truth through the one who is called the Spirit of Truth. Here we remember that just a few chapters earlier, Jesus calls Satan the devil, the father of lies. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is a liar and only leads people to lie and guides them into further and further deception. But not so with the spirit of truth. Where would we expect the spirit of truth to guide the disciples but into all the truth? He does not guide them into part of the truth or into partial truth. This is not even some secret truth or specific truth, but all the truth. Who doesn't want to know all the truth? Jesus doesn't say, however, that he will guide them into every truth. If you are a student, maybe you find that disappointing on your next exam. as if to treat the spirit of truth as some crystal ball. Such would only be used and abused by fallen men to further their interests, personal status, and position. 
So what does Jesus mean when he says the spirit of truth will guide them into all the truth? In order to understand this, we need to see what John records about Jesus and the truth in his gospel. So in John 1, verse 14, we are told that Christ's glory is full of grace and truth. And that compared to the law that was given through Moses, Jesus is better as grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He is the fount, the source of grace and truth. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Remaining, abiding, and dwelling in Christ's word means knowing the truth. Or how about John 14, 6, after Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then how about the end of John's Gospel? As Jesus stands before Pilate and says to Pilate, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What are we to glean from these? All the truth that the Spirit of Truth will guide the disciples into is inseparably linked to the person and work of Jesus. In his person, he is the truth, and in his work, he speaks truth. What is this but the full revelation of the character of God, the wisdom of God, and the work of God made known through Jesus Christ? The Spirit of Truth, guiding them into all the truth, will never lead them away from Jesus for all the truth they need is intrinsically bound up in Him. The Spirit of truth, guiding the disciples into all the truth, is guiding them into a greater understanding and greater intimacy with Christ Himself. How does the Spirit guide these original disciples? Here is the explanation. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit of Truth had a speaking ministry to these original disciples. He would speak to them in order to lead them into all the truth. It is a guidance through words. Words that come with great meaning and reality. Words that come with great power and conviction. Words that come with command and authority. But it is not the Spirit speaking on His own authority. The Spirit of truth does not claim His own authority as why He is to be listened to and heeded. Rather, it's what He hears that He will speak. Well, the question then becomes, what does the Spirit hear that has authority? It is not the cacophony of noise that comes from the world by which the Spirit speaks. It's not by the desires and wills of men by which the Spirit speaks. No, it is by the crystal clear and direct voice of Christ that so speaks to the Spirit, so He hears Christ and so He speaks. It's the Spirit speaking on Christ's 
authority. No voice ever came from heaven that said of the Spirit, listen to him. Jesus is the one who says of himself, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Where was it given to him from? From the Father. All authority has been given to him. So how is the Spirit speaking on this authority? Because it is the authority from the Father given to the Son coming to the Spirit to his original disciples. Not to jump the gun. Says he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We already read this. Even did we? John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me, says Jesus. The spirit of truth, guiding the disciples into all the truth, is a work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The truth is to be followed, lived by, and obeyed. It's not an impersonal, nebulous idea of truth, but a truth that comes with the very authority of Christ, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is upon his authority, the spirit of truth will lead them into all truth. So what these disciples will hear are the very words of Christ that carry the weight and seriousness of all of Christ's authority. The Spirit is like a faithful ambassador declaring the message of King Jesus to his disciples. He will declare to them the things that are to come. It's not an invitation to create a prophecy conference. What is that? He declares to them things that are to come, refers to all that transpires as a consequence of the pivotal revelation bound up with Jesus' person, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. There are things that will come as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. It is these that they need to know. But this is not some new truth for the times that are to come. This is Jesus' truth about the things that are to come. There are things about the spiritual state of the kingdom and about the vast greatness of the glory of Christ that their minds could not carry now, but they were truths of what was to come, and the Spirit would declare it to them. How many people have claimed various things the Spirit has said to them that contradict Christ's authority and in fact try to usurp Christ's authority and go against Christ's word. With people saying, the Spirit told me this, the Spirit told me that. How many claim to be led by the Spirit's authority in their lives? All the while they are not living in the truth. All the while they think they have a get-out-of-jail-free card to use in order to excuse their worldly way of thinking, their fleshly desires, and the desire to promote themselves. To say, the Spirit said to me, sounds like someone 
that is a spiritual person, but it is used too often to promote pseudo-spiritual living. Living that is not in step with the Spirit, but living that is grieving the Spirit. All the while trying to justify it by subjectively wielding the Spirit so that no one can question them, or no one can hold them accountable, or no one can say, you're wrong. No, 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 no. The Spirit told me. When the truth, the Spirit never said any such thing. How can I say this with any certainty? Because the Spirit never contradicts the Word of God. Yet too often, I see the Spirit tell people that which is forbidden by the Word of God. Therefore, the Spirit has not said it. The Spirit will never tell you to sleep with your girlfriend. The Spirit will never say that it's okay to look at pornography or commit adultery because of a lack of intimacy in your marriage. The Spirit will never tell you it's okay to lie, to cheat, or to steal. The Spirit will never lead you away from the local body of Christ church so that you can practice Lone Ranger Christianity apart from the church. The Spirit will never tell you to disobey your leaders in the church and give you an excuse as to why you can't submit to them those who are faithfully keeping watch over your souls. These are the dangers of short-circuiting the application of this text of jumping the first application and making it all about ourselves. We make the spirit of truth a liar. May it never be. How should we think about these verses in their application to our lives? We are the beneficiaries of the spirit of truth guiding the original disciples into all the truth because it was this truth that was inscripturated into the New Testament. We are the beneficiaries of the apostolic witness to whom the Holy Spirit made known the truth of Christ's person, his teaching, and his future purposes. We have the word of God from men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the scripture that has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If it is what Christ says to the Holy Spirit that he then declared to the disciples, they were those who had the very words of Christ. The all-sufficient, authoritative, inerrant, and inspired word. And Christ builds his church upon the apostolic witness with himself being the cornerstone. It is the word upon which we stake our whole lives and our eternal destiny. It is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as declared from the scriptures, which is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. But if we use the Spirit to repudiate his revelation of Christ, as disclosed in scripture, we repudiate Jesus Christ himself. Our guidance must always be aligned 
with the Spirit's witness as it's given in the Bible. If you want to be guided into all the truth, get into the Bible where it was written down by those who were guided into all truth by the Spirit of truth. Apostolic spiritual understanding was shared with all of God's people through the apostolic witness of the Word. All the truth. Which the Spirit of truth led the disciples into was written down so we might live by it, follow it, obey it, and so as a result, glorify Christ with our lives. The first part, the second part, Christ promises the Spirit will glorify Him. The Spirit guides, the Spirit glorifies. Christ promises the Spirit will glorify Him. We cannot take these two promises as a two-step or two-stage process, as if once the Spirit had guided the disciples into all the truth, then He would glorify Christ. Rather, we should understand it to be that as the Spirit of truth is guiding the disciples into all the truth, He is guiding them to Jesus' glory. Truly, this is something they could not bear at present, for Jesus' future glory comes through His crucifixion which at that moment might cause doubt or confusion. Jesus is about to be glorified through his death, resurrection, and ascension, to sit at the Father's right hand with all power and authority and glory. This is the truth into which the Spirit will guide the disciples. How is it that the Spirit will glorify Jesus? You see what it says here. He takes that which is Christ's, all the truth, and declares it to the disciples. This is not mere transfer data of data, transfer of data. It's not a, a data dump of knowledge. It's not like the status bar on your computer screen waiting for files to download. This is not mere repetition of what Jesus said, but it is all revelation bound up in Jesus' person and mission, who is the final and full revelation of God, pressed home on the disciples. It's for all of life, for all of worship, and for all of glory. The Spirit is declaring the message of Jesus. And there is nothing the Spirit needs to add to this message. There is in no way that the Spirit can improve upon this message. It's rather the Spirit taking what belongs to Jesus, the truth about, what, uh, the truth about who He is, what He has done, what He has said, and declaring it to the disciples. The Spirit glorifies Jesus by declaring what is Jesus, namely, the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. And why is all the truth to be found in the Son? Because all that the Father has is His. He received all things from the Father. The Son is co-equal with the Father. And it is the Father who intends that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. As it says in John 5, 23. All that is the Father's is the Son's. And as the Spirit takes all that is Christ and declares it to the disciples, so Jesus Christ is glorified to the pleasure of God the Father and as the express purpose of the Spirit. It brings us back 
to this important truth. Would you set your eyes on it again with me? He will glorify me. The Spirit glorifies the glorified Savior. And he does so with certainty. He doesn't try. He doesn't make an attempt. He doesn't hope to glorify Christ. He will and he does glorify Christ. In his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, J.I. Packer says the following. Quote, I remember walking to a church one winter evening to preach on the words, He shall glorify me. Seeing the building floodlit as I turned the corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration <laughs> my message needed. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are someplace that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not have been because of the darkness. And to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Close quote. This illustration exposes some common problems we have when it comes to purpose of the Spirit. The first problem I think that we encounter is that <coughs> if the Spirit is like a floodlight and is meant to illumine Jesus Christ, it means that attention will be taken away from us. If the Spirit is making Christ visible and known in all of his glory, it means that we are not being illuminated. We are not being recognized. We are not being praised. We are not being exalted. Truth be told, we like to be the center of attention. And so many would try to reposition the floodlight and take it off of Jesus and then use the Spirit in order to promote themselves or to promote their own righteousness or their own spirituality or their own specialness or their own sacrifice or their own suffering or even, or even their own faithfulness. <laughs> like a little child who's saying to his parents, look what I can do. Do you need the recognition of men to be faithful to God? Do you need to be seen by others to remain devoted to Christ? No man was ever to know your faithfulness. Would it be enough that God knows? Stop repositioning the bloodline on yourself. The second problem we often find is that we've come to gaze directly into the spotlight. 
And if you've ever stared intensely at a bright light for any length of time, when you stop looking at the spotlight, you can't see, or all you can see is spots. Could it be we have ever been looking so closely, so intently, so longingly into the floodlight that we've completely missed what the floodlight was meant to illuminate? All the while, we think that we aren't seen, and all the while we are exclaiming, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, that we have become completely blind to seeing Christ. If we think that the purpose of the Spirit is to create Spirit-centered ministries with Spirit-centered people to offer merely Spirit-centered self-help, we have become completely blind, for that is not the Spirit of Christ. That is the Spirit of Antichrist. How can I say such a thing? Because anything or anyone that obscures Christ, that hides Christ, that minimizes Christ, that downplays Christ, is not the Spirit of Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ makes it His aim and His purpose to glorify Christ through declaring all that is Christ's to the disciples who wrote it down for us in the Bible to read. Then what happens? We read how the Spirit glorifies the Son, and we respond how? By glorifying the Son. The Spirit is not Spirit-centered. No, the Spirit is Christ-centered. And where you find Christ exalted, and Christ magnified, and Christ adored, and Christ honored, and Christ worshipped, and Christ glorified through His Word, is where you will find the Spirit at work. And can we ever deny that such a place would put an emphasis on the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Because when Jesus says to these disciples, He will glorify me, it is as if he is saying, he shall make me glorious in people's eyes by making them aware of the glory that is mine already and that will be enhanced when I have gone back to the Father via the cross and resurrection and ascension to be enthroned in my kingdom. This brings us to an even greater truth. For the Spirit is not merely the Spirit acting like a floodlight, not merely the Spirit honoring Christ. It is the Spirit who glorified Christ in His person, decisively and publicly, how? By raising Him from the dead. 1 Timothy 3.16 Great indeed we confess is a mystery of godliness. He was manifest, manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Do you hear that in there? He was vindicated by the Spirit. Hmm, interesting. How was Jesus vindicated by the Spirit? He was vindicated by the Spirit in the resurrection. This is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who did not deserve to die, but died in our place, taking God's wrath and judgment upon himself, but now he made perfect atonement for our sin, and so he is vindicated, raised by the Spirit, and shown to be glorious. The Spirit has clothed Christ in immortal glory as the very beginning of the new creation. It is such now that those who have received the Spirit of God 
have been enabled to see the crucifixion of Christ in a new and divine light. For the Spirit glorifies Jesus through the glory of the cross. This is where I would often question what might be called by many a movement of the Spirit. Because so often this movement is devoid of the glory of the cross. But if it is devoid of the glory of the cross, it is devoid of the Spirit. If we find the glory of the cross as an odious thought, as a scandalous thought, as that of which we would rather not talk about, we cannot think that that is of the Spirit. It was the Spirit of glory who glorified the Lord of glory through the cross of suffering and shame, where Christ bore our sin, so that we might be saved, redeemed, forgiven, justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified. We of all people are not to be ashamed, but are to look upon and behold the great glory of the cross. This is why John has been saying over and over again, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man must be lifted up because it's in the cross that Christ is exalted as our Savior and King. Do you know what John is doing? John is reflecting upon, he's calling back up Isaiah 6. Do you remember what Isaiah 6 says? If you have your Bibles, turn there with me for a moment. What does Isaiah see? A great vision glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What are the next words? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Filled the temple with what? What is John doing? Remember the great glory that Isaiah saw of this Lord, of this King, seated upon a throne. Do you remember when Isaiah heard the angels calling back and forth to one another? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you remember the intensity of that glory that was so great upon Isaiah that he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you remember that glory? Look at the cross. There you see the Lord, high and lifted up. There you see his glory on display. There, the glory of the Lord is being made known so that the whole earth will be filled with his glory. It only comes through a crucified and risen Savior. People long to find a spirit-filled church with a spirit-led pastor. What do they need? place where there is boisterous music, a service that runs long, a chorus of vocal participants, a manipulation to have an emotional experience, 
A charismatic man elaborates on mystical premonitions and speculations? No. It's time for us to recapture what a spirit-filled church is and what a spirit-led pastor is. For it is a gathering where Christ is at the center continually. Where the pastor proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ relentlessly. And where the people demand that their hearts and minds are saturated with all the truth completely. The Holy Spirit will not be known as he is in himself apart from Christ. Jesus, the Lord Christ, is the focal point of the Spirit's ministry first to last. We know the Spirit is at work if Christ is being glorified. If our attention and focus is arrested by Christ and our gaze is to be completely captivated by his glory and his beauty and his grace, that's the work of the Spirit. Maybe you would think I've just completely undermined this whole entire retreat theme. We're here to talk about the spirit of glory. Maybe all our conferences should only be about Christ. However, it is necessary to grow in our personal knowledge of the spirit. This is what St. Clair Ferguson says. The fact that within the economy of the divine activity, he does not draw attention to himself, to the Son and the Father, is actually a reason for us to know him better, to experience communion with him more intimately. We desire to know, commune, keep in step with the Spirit, all for the sake of glorifying Christ in our lives. The Spirit's purpose of glorifying Christ is the same of Spirit-filled people, to glorify Christ. Oh, that we would desire to glorify Him more. Oh, that the Spirit working through the Word would make this the very heartbeat of our lives, where glorifying Christ is our greatest satisfaction, our singular desire, and an unstoppable motivation. That it would be our insatiable appetite. So that it would put to death all of our pride, all the reasons why we make concessions and justifications for worshiping ourselves. So the gospel must be proclaimed. Because it's through the gospel that Christ is glorified and people are saved through believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing they may have life in His name. The purpose of the Spirit, glorifying the Son, goes on. Precious words we have from you, our Lord and God. Words of truth, words of life, words with authority, and words of glory. Forgive us, O Lord. have sought to draw attention to ourselves. Forgive us when we have failed to glorify Christ the way that we 
salvation. Forgive us if our desire has gone grown cold. Renew that desire. Through the power of your word, the working of your spirit, for the evangelizing of the world. Christ be glorified by us more and more. We pray in Jesus' name.